been a really good month, but I think if you look deeper, I think you're going to see a lot of it is artificial in terms of high incentive spending and in terms of sleep. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Caitlin Kenny And I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. Today is Friday, April 2nd, and that was Jessica Caldwell, senior analyst at Edmunds.com. You heard at the top of the podcast. She was talking about improving car sales. Caitlin, today on the podcast, cheap money, overconfident consumers all get together and invest in an asset that never, ever goes down in price until the bubble pops. And then it does. I'm speaking, of course, of the bacchanalia of the international shipping market that's coming up on the show. First, our Planet Money Indicator. Today, our indicator comes special from the blog cave. Our own Jacob Goldstein is here. Jacob, what have you got for us? Caitlin, for you today, I have 162,000. That's the number of jobs that the U.S. economy added in March. That sounds good, but I have this feeling you're going to somehow give me a bad spin on it. Bad would be too strong a word, but there are some reasons to to be cautious about that number. For one thing, more than 40,000 of those jobs are temp jobs that came from hiring people to conduct the census. Uh, for another thing, there was a bounce that came because those snowstorms back in February actually depressed the jobs number. So you saw that come back really strong this month. Okay. So all that said, though, once you strip those things out, you still see some job growth in March. Uh, And that's really a big deal given the long series of of job losses we've seen through the recession. You did actually deliver us some good news. True, but I haven't talked about unemployment yet. (laughs) Oh, here it comes. I knew it was coming. Right. So unemployment is a little bit weird, right? Because we added jobs. So you think, oh, good, we added jobs. Unemployment went down. No, it didn't go down. It stayed flat at 9.7%. And the reason that happens is because unemployment measures the number of people who are actually out there looking for work but don't have a job. And when the economy starts getting better, more people start looking for work. So we're likely to continue to see this in the next few months where uh, the economy keeps adding jobs, but unemployment stays flat or it doesn't go down very much. So should I feel optimistic? You should feel optimistic. If you think things are going to stay on the same track they're on now, which is what a lot of economists seem seem to be saying, then what we can expect is more more jobs added every month. Eventually, the number of jobs added each month will get so large that unemployment will start going down. And at least for now, we seem to be headed in the right direction. Okay. Thank you, Jacob. Thanks, Jacob. Thanks. All right, Caitlin, on to the high seas and today's show. This show was actually inspired by an email that we got here at Planet Money. We've been hearing from a bunch of you who have strange jobs or sort of a unique view on the economy. But Caitlin, you got particularly interested in this one. It came from a guy named Jeff Musk. Yeah, Jeff is a ship driver. And I have to say, Hannah, when I read ship driver, I think I pictured Jeff looking something like the Gorton's fishermen. I don't know if you know Gorton's, but they made this line of frozen seafood products. It was really popular in the Northeast when I was younger. And their logo is this man in a yellow rain slicker, and he has a matching hat, and he's standing in front of this huge wooden wheel, and he's, like, pushing on it as hard as he can to turn the ship. Big gray beard. Yeah, exactly. You see where I'm going with this. But it turns out Jeff's job, not like this at all. He says that ship navigation has come a very long way since the days of the Gorton's fishermen. And he says the wheel he uses looks a lot different than the image I have in my head. It was actually a, a very small wheel, um, uh, about the size of a, 
know, silver dollar. On on my ship, we typically use that to steer. There is a, a more traditional trick helm. Uh, it's like a steering wheel on a car, but we just have a little knob and we'll we'll adjust the autopilot or adjust the rudder with that knob and uh, and direct the ship. So a tiny knob for what is actually, we're not talking about a little boat. It's an enormous ship, right? The, the ships that Jeff drives carry thousands of cars from one country to another. He actually told you, Caitlin, he can run laps on the deck yeah, of the ship. Yeah, it's huge. Um, so Jeff's job has changed a lot in the last couple of years. We are not buying as many cars as we used to and toys and TVs. Global trade has slowed down. So if you're someone like Jeff and you spend your days in the ocean, you notice that. And Jeff said he noticed it most recently on the last job he had. He was actually working outside a port in Singapore. And one thing that happens when you're a ship driver like he is and trade stops, you end up just sitting there. The traffic that comes that passes Singapore is uh, relegated to, to two east-west traffic lanes. So it's just like a highway, and you're really not allowed to go out of bounds. Or the authorities, the port authorities in Singapore, will get on the radio and tell you to get back into the, into the road. Um, but as far as the ships that have been anchored, it's really haphazard. And they're of all different sizes. There's um, drilling ships for exploratory um, oil and gas. There's container ships. There's tankers. So it's just, it's just everything. Um, dropping an anchor and you know, setting up home for a while. You know, no one can really say anything. So they're all cramming into a, a pretty narrow strip of water, you know, maybe two miles um, north to south and then quite wide. Um, and that's where they're anchoring. And big ships like this, they're not supposed to just sit still in the open ocean. And they're definitely not supposed to drop anchor in some place right outside the coast of Singapore. But if you don't have work and you have nowhere to go, it's expensive for them to go into the port. So they end up just sitting out there and waiting. And when they do this, when they just sit there for weeks, for months at a time, they cause problems. So Jeff explained this to you, and and you're going to hear David Kestenbaum in this tape too. Because of all of these ships being anchored in and around Singapore, there's been a lot of damage to, to subsea fiber optic cable. So my ship was sent to Singapore to um, go out and start repairing all of these breaks. Um, and the number of breaks, I mean, as we would fix one, another one would break because ships were dropping their anchors on, on these uh, very delicate fiber optic cables. And being a mariner, um, I'm aware that there is a lot of stuff laid on the ocean floor, um, pipelines uh, for oil and gas, uh, cables. And there's, there's all sorts of stuff down there. Um, but I didn't realize the the complexity of these systems and how it's not it's not just a, a piece of fiber optic that goes from you know New York to London. It branches off in between and goes to five or six other places. Um, so they're just huge systems of of fiber optics all over, all over the world. How big are the cables and how big are the anchors they're up against? So uh, to to anchor a ship like like the one I normally work on are. Our anchor is about 700 pounds. Wow. <laughs> think. How physically should, large uh, is it? Like, um, It could pretty much crush my car front to back. Yeah, they're, they're these very large anchors um, to, to hold that ship. And there's also a lot of chain as well. And the chain links are as, you know, as big as your head. Um, so those are, those are quite heavy. And any of that could, could do a lot of damage to a a 20-millimeter um, piece of fiber optic cable. 
you could see imagining something to crush your car in a chain link <laughs> as big as your head. Why it would be so destructive. So not only are these ships just parked somewhere they're not supposed to be, but while they're sitting there, they're actually breaking this global infrastructure that we depend on that runs our internet and phone lines. And most of the time, these breaks don't cause disruptions to the service that you and I have, Hana. We wouldn't really notice because the cable companies have backups. But it's still really expensive for them to hire one of these ships to go out there and fix the break. So, Caitlin, I mean, we, we've we heard about ships sitting still outside of ports for a while. This has been like the major shipping story for the last several years that global trade has slowed down. And it's meant that there are, you know, these ships just sitting outside ports and not moving as quickly that stuff is sort of frozen. But in the last six months, we're hearing all these reports that, you know, people are buying more goods again. Trade is starting to pick up. So I just wanted to call around to some industry types and sort of figure out where things are at. I reached one analyst, Tim Coffin. He runs fleet investments for M2M, which is a shipping investment fund. And he says that things are improving. The container segment uh, absolutely went through the floor when trade volumes declined about 18 months ago. And now the container market is starting to come back, and and some container operators are saying that freight rates are pretty close to break-even. So they're they're still losing money, but they're not losing as much money as they were earlier in in, in this year or certainly during last year. So just when I started to think, well, maybe things are, are getting better after all, Tim started to talk about something that, I have to say, it kind of freaked me out. He said, yes, there are these clusters of ships parked in the water outside ports in Singapore. He also mentioned Indonesia, but they're starting to move. And he said the thing that we really need to worry about is this whole other group of ships that I wasn't even thinking about. These are the ships that are still sitting on dry land, brand new ships that are about to be ready and put out to sea. So back in 2005, global trade was doing really well. Drivers like Jeff were never sitting still. And if you ran a shipping company back then, you had to do something you hadn't done in a really long time. There was so much demand that you needed to build new boats. You just couldn't keep up with all the orders you were getting. And luckily, financing was pretty cheap back then, as some of you may remember. Yes. And the banks made it easy for the shipping industry to order lots and lots of new ships. The relative demand for these types of ships was was exceptionally high, and nobody had built them in many years because freight rates had had been stuck at a fairly low marker for for some time. And so what we had was a fleet that was getting older and older and and, and less efficient. And uh, and all of a sudden, there was this incredible demand, particularly from China and India and various other sort of uh, emerging economies, uh, which uh, put the, 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 which uh, supplied demand to these types of ships that was uh, outside of anything we'd ever seen before, and and really could have possibly predicted. So basically, it was like emerging economies like China and India. They were they were building and growing, and so they wanted all these materials, but they weren't enough ships to send out the materials. So therefore, the rate for the ships that were out there just kind of went through the roof. Exactly, exactly. The relative demand for every available ship uh, became very, very high, very, very quickly, and too quickly for us to be able to to provide that level of capacity. We couldn't build ships fast enough. So what happens when you have really high demand for something? The price goes up. And because all the shipping companies wanted more vessels and right away, the people who build ships, the people who work in shipyards in China and Korea, got really, really busy during that time. Shipyards were able to charge much higher prices. And that was a really busy time for Ben Pusey. He's a ship broker at an international ship brokering company called RS Plateau. He's basically the guy in between. It's his job to connect the shipyards who build the ships to companies who want to buy them. And Ben says the ship prices he saw in 2007 and 2008 were like nothing he'd ever seen before. 
the rapid increase of ship prices was staggering if you were sitting here watching it. Um, and How staggering? Uh, Can you give me an example? Well, you know, let, let's say, for example, um, four years ago, um, five years ago, a, a modern Panamax Bolker, which is... Um, it's a bulk carrier that uh, has the dimensions, the biggest dimensions possible to fit through the Panama Canal. Mm-hmm. And what would something um, like that carry? Uh, any range of goods, grain, coal, um, basic raw materials at okay. the end of the day. And um, l- let's say now, for example, you'd be able to buy a 2008 build for $40 million. Um, I think the most expensive sold was in 2007, maybe the beginning, maybe early 2008, and it fetched 104 million for the same equivalent ship. So, you know, if you have gone out there and paid 100 million for a ship that's now worth 40 million or even less, 35, you're in trouble. You are never going to be able to pay off that ship. So, <laughs> we've got people with access to cheap financing around 2005, 2006, who wanted a big, shiny new asset that never goes down in value. That's just all sounding very familiar. Yes, it should. And of course, now all those shiny new assets are sitting in the world's shipyards, dropping in value, and the people bought them, they're worried because they know that they paid more for them than these ships are now worth. And Hannah, I'm, I'm going to have to say something here. <laughs> I know what you're going to say. Just do it. They're underwater on their ships. Yes, they are. So I asked Ben about this comparison to the U.S. housing market that we've been alluding to here. And he said, yeah, it's very similar. And even if you look at the way these ships were financed, the similarities run very deep. People were, had, were given access to 80, 90 percent finance on these vessels, which the banks did. And um, yeah, it's all collapsing like a house of cards around them. And, you know, I think the owners are responsible, the banks are responsible, a great many people are responsible. And I've I'm not sure that, you know, we have we have seen the real financial implications hit just yet. So that's the way Ben Pusey sees this. He's the shipbroker working in between the shipbuilders and the companies that want to buy the ships. And Tim Coffin, the analyst, he sees this also. And, and the way he sees it most clearly is in this book. It's called The Order Book. And it's full of all the new ships that were built in the bubble and now no one knows what to do with. Right now, the order book, for example, the dry market, stands at about 35 or 40 percent of the total trading fleet. Now, a ship lasts about 25 years, so you expect the order book to be, and, and it takes, let's say, three years to build a ship. So you expect the order book, when uh, including estimated growth and things like that, to be 16 to 20 percent of the existing fleet. So the order book is basically twice the size that it needs to be. I have to say, Hannah, talking to Ben and Tim, I just kind of felt like the shipping industry is sort of one big step back from where we've come to with the housing market. It feels like here now people know they're underwater. They're talking about it. They're trying to take steps to either walk away or negotiate with their lenders. But the shipping industry, they're sort of stuck in denial a little bit. They know that they have these losses coming, but they're just not quite ready to deal with it. And, you know, you can't really blame them because that's going to have a huge impact on their bottom line. And the lenders who they borrowed the money from, they don't want to acknowledge this either because that means the ship owners may not be able to pay them back for all the money they borrowed. But it's inevitable that in the end there'll be more losses. And Tim and Ben both said that they think more shipping companies are going to go out of business. But for right now, everyone's still in that phase of denial and we'll just have to wait and see. 
I remember the denial phase fondly. Okay, I think that does it for us today. You can read more about the jobs numbers out today at our blog, npr.org slash money. And as always, you can send us questions, comments, concerns, your weird, strange job in our global economy at planetmoney at npr.org. I'm Hannah Joffe-Waltz. And I'm Caitlin Kenny. Thanks for listening. Thank you.